invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, looking at the last few verses of 2 Corinthians. and The title of the message is Finally Friends, and that's really how Paul starts this passage. And it reminds me, if you think about it, this is the end of the letter. And we know from studying First and Second Corinthians that this was not the first letter he wrote, right? In fact, we think it was the fourth letter he wrote because the letters of First and Second Corinthians refer to other letters, but we have two of them, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians. And so when he comes to finally brethren, I think he's doing kind of like we would do. If, if somebody was leaving us or if we were writing a letter or an email and we wanted to kind of sum up, we wanted to say, you know, I've told you a lot, but this is important. Remember this. Kind of reminds me of any parent sent kids off to college this year. A few of you. Anybody left for college this year? A few, very few of you. Um, you know, your parents have this way, and, and parents, we have this way of kind of thinking, wait a minute, they're leaving. I better say some important things here. Moms typically say, have you got on clean underwear? Dads might say, do you have any money? Kids love it when dads ask them if they have any money. Uh, not that dad's promising to give them any money. Just, do you have any money? Well, how about let me borrow some, you know? But it's those kind of final instructions because you love them, you care for them, and that's what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So we get to verse 11, and let me just read verses 11 through 14. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What, what a great benediction. What a great closing to a letter who Paul is writing to people he dearly loves. Now, we know that Paul had established the church at Corinth. He had been there with them about 18 months. He had been back, apparently, on one occasion and is now away from them, perhaps in Philippi, but away from them, writing this letter with the intention of going back. He's coming back. One of the things he's coming back to do is receive an offering from the church in Corinth. That he has sent people ahead of him to deliver the letter, but also to prepare them for his visit. So he's talked a lot. Now, let's be honest. There's been some times in Second Corinthians that he's gotten pretty stern with the church at Corinth. This was a church in the middle of a wicked, perverse city. In fact, one of the terms that, that I've read in, in, from scholars is to, to use the term to Corinthianize meant that you were spending time with a prostitute. And so that's the kind of city it was. It was a city where people had a lot of wealth, and those people were trying to fill a God-shaped hole in their heart and in their life with stuff, and it doesn't work. And so Paul has written this letter, and the, the outside had been trying to infiltrate the church. What, what should be happening? The church should be infiltrating the world. But the world was becoming a little too familiar to the church. And so Paul writes the letters of First and Second Corinthians. And he gets to these final instructions. He says, finally, brethren. Literally, there's something remaining. There's something about the word finally that lets you know this is important. There's something else I've got to tell you. And then he has five imperatives. And these are important. In fact, I really want to apply them to us as we apply them to them. to them. First thing he says is, rejoice. <laughs> now, that's easier said than done. Or is it? 
you know, for Paul to write all this stuff, and, and some of it he's been fussing at him, you know. It'd be kind of like your parents having to get on to you for something, and then you say, you know, the last thing they say is, but now rejoice. <laughs> You're thinking, wow, I just feel like I got beat up. But Paul says, rejoice. The problem with joy is that it can't be manufactured. What does the world substitute for joy? Happiness. What is, what is it? Why, what is the difference between joy and happiness? Happiness is so external. We'll spend money, we'll go to eat, we'll go on vacation, we'll go to these places, and they make us happy. Nothing necessarily wrong with being happy. But joy is so much better. Because joy, you can experience joy in the midst of sorrow. I've told you before about the sign that I saw in the bookstore I really liked. It was, joy is not the absence of sorrow, it is the presence of God. So when Paul says rejoice, he's saying to them, have joy. In fact, it comes from God. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, and so on. So where does joy come from? It doesn't come from the outside. It's not dependent on your circumstances. And so even a church like the church in Corinth, who lived in the midst of a wicked city, could experience joy and could rejoice. What are they rejoicing in? One thing, rejoice in the presence of God. Even if you don't have some of the things that everybody else around you have, you can rejoice. Why? Because you got something better. In fact, I think if the church really learned to rejoice, it would be an evangelistic opportunity. The world looks at the church sometimes and thinks, I don't want to be like them. And yet, folks, we got something they don't have. We got Jesus, but because we got Jesus, we ought to have joy. In fact, David in Psalms 51. David, who has been confronted by the prophet over his sin, comes back humbly before God in Psalms 51 and says, basically, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. But in the next verse, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. If the world out there could see the church responding to Christ as we should and even rejoicing, I think there's something attractive about that. Because it's far better than happiness. And so Paul says, rejoice. And for them to have joy in the midst of a perverse city was going to get noticed. Because everybody else was experiencing joy through substances or through things they could buy or people they could manipulate to bring happiness into their life. And how long does that last? Not real long. A lot of times after happiness, there's the hangover. A lot of times after happiness, there's emptiness. And what Paul's saying is rejoice would be such a testimony to the city. Hey, wouldn't it be the same for us? Rejoice. Then he says be made complete. The word literally means repair or knit together. In fact, in Matthew 4.21, it's used of describing the disciples as they're mending their nets. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. They're mending their nets. That is the same word. And so Paul is saying, listen, there's some things lacking in you. There's some things that need to be made complete. I've just written you a letter, 13 chapters. Go back and reread it. Be complete. In fact, that's really what, what part of the work that God does in our life. The day we come to Christ, we're saved. But the salvation is settled. The sanctification is a process. He's making us more like Him. And so be made complete. Third thing he says is be comforted. 
This is that Greek word that, that the root of it's paraclete. I remember as a kid growing up singing about the paraclete, wondering what two athletic shoes had to do with God. But it was a word describing the Holy Spirit, but it literally means to be called alongside of. And so when Paul says be comforted, he uses that word here to say, hey, allow people to get up next to you that are going to help comfort you. It's real hard to comfort from a distance. Yes, a phone call sometimes can make you feel a little bit better. But when you're close to one another, there's a comfort that takes place in knowing that somebody has come alongside of you. Perhaps Jesus was skin on for the moment to comfort you. And so Paul says, be comforted. Literally, receive admonition. Be comforted in that. The fourth thing, be like-minded. He's telling the church at Corinth, be like-minded. Literally, it means to think the same thing. Now, let me ask you, does that mean that they're all going to be robots agreeing on everything possible under the sun? No, look at the disciples. Even the apostles, as they wrote the New Testament, they didn't agree on every single thing. But what made them like-minded? They had the mind of Christ. In fact, one of the cool things about the church, we're going to talk about fellowship in a minute. But one of the cool things about the church, i got a, a picture of a wheel here. This is it's coming. There it is. One thing you notice about this, one, all the spokes are different colors, so that's why I liked it. It was colorful. But if the hub is Jesus, what happens to the spokes the closer they get to the hub? They get closer to each other. Now, a lot of churches are like-minded over different things other than Jesus. Maybe sports or geography or, you know, what part of the country you're from or whatever. Those things really will not unite you. But Jesus will. And so what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth is be like-minded. It's like the first century church in Acts chapter 2 when it talks about the fact they, they were worshiping together with one mind in the temple. It didn't mean they all shared a brain. You know, there's times I have people think me and my wife share a brain because we can finish each other's sentences, and most people would think she keeps it most of the time. It's, it's my turn for the brain. But that, that's not what he's talking about, but he is saying the closer you get to Jesus the closer you're going to get to each other. And so all these other things that can become distractions, and they certainly were evident in Corinth, and they're certainly evident in our generation. Those things are not what's going to unite us. What will unite us? Jesus. So the more I grow in Christ, the more I study God's Word, the more I fellowship with other believers and, and come to places like this where I'm being taught and involved in church, and the closer I get to Christ, the closer I'm going to be to other believers. So be like-minded. And then the fifth thing he says is live in peace. Literally cultivate peace or pursue it. Now keep in mind, this was not a peaceful setting they were in. Corinth was not a peaceful city. In fact, one of the worst things that was happening is not just the fact there's all this perversion outside the church, but there's false teachers coming into the church and the Corinthian believers, who some of them were brand new believers, couldn't, didn't know the difference. And, and one of the reasons Paul had to write Second Corinthians was to demonstrate to them, listen, they're teaching you stuff that's not from God. So if what they're teaching you doesn't square with Scripture and it doesn't square with what you've heard from God, don't buy it. In fact, their motivation was they were trying to get rich off the Corinthian believers. So they were teaching error. And so Paul says, live in peace. Well, how do you live in peace when you've got conflict trying to infiltrate the church? one thing, to live in peace does not mean you accept everything. Well, I'm just going to live in peace. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm just going to accept what's going on. No. To live in peace is something you pursue, though. Hebrews 12, 14 
It says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Ephesians 4.3, same author, Paul says, Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As Paul is saying, it is important that the church is a church of peace. And what's going to cause peace? Again, it's going to be we're pursuing Christ. And the closer we get to Christ, the closer we're going to get to each other. And all these other things become secondary. They become unimportant. They're non-essentials. So Paul says, live in peace, let strife cease. Well, that's the instruction. That's what Paul says. Five things important. I think we need to apply those to our life. But how do you do that practically? And so the rest of the passage, these next three verses, talk about the fellowship with other believers and then the fellowship with God, your human partnership. In a lot of churches, we do the three F's real well. Anybody know what the three F's are? Food, fun, and fellowship. Have you ever noticed that? Anytime an announcement comes out of the church, what are you going to, if you don't have food, fun, and fellowship, you really can't call it a church meeting, I don't think. Every now and then we'll have fun and fellowship without food, but you know, you got to have food, fun, and fellowship. Well, there's an, there's an importance to that. that. That's not something to trivialize, it's not something to dismiss. I, I took guitar lessons for about a week. Years ago, I, I, I got a guitar, wanted to learn to play the guitar, and so I was, you know, strumming on it, and, you know, I, I got me a little tuner. I remember breaking a string just trying to tune the thing. You know, I was getting it too tight, and I was so focused on my hands, I didn't notice that one of our kids was over there just playing with the knobs. So I, I went and took lessons from this guy, and, and I got into a spiritual conversation with the guy, and I finally, you know, found out he was a believer, professed to be a Christian. I said, I said really? I said, where do you go to church? He said, well, I don't go to church. I said, really? He said, yeah, I watch TV. <laughs> you don't go to church, you watch TV, you're a Christian. You don't go to church, you watch TV. What did he mean? He meant, I just get my preaching off of television. Well, is there some good preaching on television? Yeah. There's some scary preaching on television. There's some, some error <laughs> in what you could hear. If you're not careful, don't just buy everything you hear from TV preachers. Square it with God's Word. But what's the thing you miss? You miss fellowship. You miss the component of the importance of having unity with other believers. In fact, that's probably why this guy quit going to church. The church he went to, he probably thought a bunch of hypocrites there and there's no unity. Of course, you've heard the statement, if we avoided everywhere there were hypocrites, we wouldn't eat, right? Because we wouldn't go to the grocery store. Maybe the reason you need to go to church is there are hypocrites there and you're one of them. Maybe God can do something about that. So the importance of fellowship, Paul says to them, First of all, greet one another with a holy kiss. I told the group last week this is coming this week, so I don't know if y'all are thinking, all right, let's practice today. Well, that was a common greeting back then, but you may be surprised to find out it wasn't men and women kissing. It was an embrace between two brothers in Christ or two sisters in Christ, kind of cheek to cheek and a kiss on the cheek. And, and you might be surprised to find out in other cultures, like Eastern Europe, they still practice that. Scared me a little bit when I was in the Ukraine and I saw guys kissing. And then I realized there wasn't something romantic or passionate about it. It was their greeting. It's what everybody did. And what scares you anymore is when they come to you. I preached in a church, and uh, there was a lot of weird stuff happening in this church because I couldn't understand what the language was going on. Uh, one of the weirdest things that happened was the church service lasted about three hours. There was a clock in the back, and I did my little sermon with an interpreter, and I noticed it got to be 12 o'clock, and then it was like 12.30, and then it got to be 12.45, and then it became 13 o'clock. 
I thought, the clock's broken. I didn't realize they were on military time. I thought, we've been here a long time. They're already having to go into the 13s now. But I noticed that one of the things they did was still receive this admonition. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, you're already doing this. You're already greeting each other. Let's make sure, first of all, that it's a sacred kiss. It's a holy kiss of fellowship. And I guess the, the best thing I can use to describe what we do in our church is shake hands or hug when people come into church. I shook hands with people this morning. That, that wasn't something they did. They greet each other with a holy kiss. And if you want to do that, that's fine. There's still people that do that in those fellowship settings. But Paul is saying, greet each other with a holy kiss. That was the near fellowship that's taking place. But then he says, and all the saints who are with me greet you. Listen, these saints had never met the church at Corinth. They had only heard Paul talk about him. They had heard Paul say how much he longed to go back and receive fellowship with them. And so he says to them, listen, everybody that's with me, loves you because you're a fellow believer with them and so you're brothers and sisters in Christ so they send their greeting with me for me as well so greet you all the saints greet you and fellowship is not necessarily a Christian thing how many of y'all remember the show Cheers I actually wrote down the lyrics see if y'all remember that making your way in the world today takes everything you got taking a break from all your worries it sure would help a lot wouldn't you like to get away Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want, be where, you want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. I remember as a minister watching that show thinking, that ought to be the ch- song at the church. <laughs> Why has it got to be the song at a bar? It ought to be the song at the church. It ought to be that the people know if you go here, it's because... You're sharing troubles together. You're sharing life experiences. And you care about one another enough to know everybody's name. What's the benefits of fellowship? Fellowship in the church is a lot better than fellowship in the world. Proverbs says it's, it's iron sharpening iron, so one brother sharpens another. That, that can't happen outside the church. If you're like my guitar, my guitar teacher that just watches television, you might get some teaching, and it could be good teaching. But you're missing out on fellowship. You're missing out on rubbing elbows with people that can encourage you. So that and then prayer. I'm not going to know how to pray for you if I'm not around you. In fact, Acts chapter 2, uh, when the church is founded, 3,000 people were added in one day to that church. And it was really the start of the church in Acts chapter 2. But it said that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I just want to say that all four of those are very essential. Yeah, teaching's important, but so is fellowship. It's important. Accountability. One of the things that needs to happen in, in fellowship with the church is accountability. You're helping me grow. You're asking me questions. I'm helping you grow. We're holding each other accountable. Why? Because we want to be more like Jesus. Encouragement takes place in the church. Hard to do from a distance. And instruction. We're learning. We're not just reading the Bible at home alone, and that's good to do. But we're receiving instruction. We're being challenged from God's Word. That takes place in the context of fellowship. So don't try to lone wolf it in the Christian life where you just kind of feel like, well, you know, I kind of, I'll read my Bible on my own. I'll worship God in nature. Well, that's really cool. But you need the fellowship of the local church. So I encourage you in that. And then what's better than that? The last thing is your divine partnership. The end of verse 11, right after Paul said the five things that he's telling them to do to rejoice and be comforted and to live in peace 
He says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And I just want to say it's impossible to do those five things if the God of love and peace is not with you. If you're not a child of God experiencing continual fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be able to do those five things. And yet it's good news to hear that if I'm called to do those things, how is that going to happen? It's because God's with me. Why is God with me? God's with me because I'm now a child of God. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has taken up residence in your life through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so the God of love and peace is with you. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. The one who does not know love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. There's kind of a popular meme going around right now that says that we need to quit saying that God's a God of unconditional love. I read this this morning on Facebook. There's five things that this author was saying we need to quit saying to church. I agree with four of them. One of them was God will never put on you more than you can handle. That's false. Why does God put on you more than you can handle? So that you'll trust God. If God never puts on you more than you handle, you don't need God. That's something that's never in Scripture, but we quote it all the time. There's a bunch of those lines. My favorite is God helps those that help themselves. You ever heard that one? God helps those that help themselves. Where is that in Scripture? Not only is it not in the Bible, it contradicts everything that is in the Bible. If it's in your Bible, it's because you wrote it in there. You might want to get some white out. I love, we were sitting in an Applebee's in California one time, and I heard this dad instructing his two teenage boys, and he said this. He said, well, my Bible says... If you ever heard people, my Bible, it must be in your Bible because it's not in mine. And he went on to, you know, I about came out of my seat and I finally said, no, they already make fun of the way I talk over here anyway. I'm not going to. But God is love and it really is unconditional love. The words agape, she's used twice in this passage in these four verses. What's unconditional about it? Romans 5, 8 said, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's his demonstration of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's unconditional love. He didn't wait until we became pretty or lovable to love us. He demonstrated even when we were walking away from him. So that's who's with us, that kind of God of love and peace. Adam Clark said this, And where neither peace nor love is found, there God cannot be. And if he be not there, yourselves and the devil make the whole assembly. Pretty powerful statement. And one of my favorites also in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, is this. Understand something, little children. You, you are from God and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. God's with you. Are you aware of that? There's going to be times in your life where you're called on to do things, maybe in the spur of the moment, that seem bigger than you. And i got good news. That's okay. Remember a time where a guy came and got me out of a, a, a group of people. It was about 1,500 students in Orlando, Florida at a Christian event. And he came and got me, and we start walking down this hall. It's the longest hall I ever remember walking down in my life because here's what he said to me. He said, Robert, there's a girl that's come up to me, and I think she's demon-possessed. And, of course, I'm thinking, she came up to you. <laughs> Go back and talk to her. But I started walking down the hall just quoting this verse, Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Listen, the reason we've overcome the world is because God's with us. 
the way that we can rejoice even in the circumstances of 21st century America when it seems like Christianity is under attack. And if it seems that way, it's because it is, even in America. Understand something. God hasn't left you alone. God is with you. God knows exactly what you're going through. God knows every circumstance of your life. As a child of God, there's comfort in the fact that God is with us. In fact, the word with means amid or amongst. Doesn't this mean there was a song years ago by Bette Midler called From a Distance. It was a pretty song. It was just stupid theology. God's not in heaven, uninvolved in earth, kind of watching from a distance. No. He's not sitting in a rocking chair peering over the evening paper. He's among us. In fact, if you're a child of God, He's in you. And then Paul makes it real specific as we close. People say the doctrine of the Trinity isn't taught. Then look at verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As I close, let's just unpack a minute. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to the church, to a group of believers who have experienced the grace of God. How? What does grace mean? It means receiving something you don't deserve. Jesus Christ died on the cross. We should have been there. We were the ones that deserved to die. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6, it says the wages of sin is what? Death. That's why Jesus died on the cross. But here's the grace part, the second half of Romans 6. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, you know, Paul may have them out of order because we're used to saying the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but I think he starts with, his, listen, you've experienced the grace of God. Let me introduce you to the Father. You need to know the Father. The love of God, the unconditional love of God. God loves you. Does God accept you? No. And I think that's where the author is getting this unconditional thing out of whack. He's, he's confusing love with acceptance. God, God, God receives us because he loves us. He receives us through grace, but he fixes what's wrong. He doesn't just accept sin because he hates it. So the God of love, and then last, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There's that word koinonia, communion, partnership. It's not just a mere attribute of God. It's a personality of God. There's several books written late, lately, and they're really good, like The Forgotten God. A lot of times you don't hear the Holy Spirit talked about in church. We talk a lot about the Father and the Son, but you need to understand, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, and it's God. It's a personality and a function. The Holy Spirit creates fellowship among all those who are saved. And so he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That's it. That's the last point. That's good news. Let's apply that to our lives. Let's pray together. Father. Thank you that we truly can experience the practice of the presence of God. Thank you that you haven't called us to something and left us. You've instructed us to rejoice and be comforted, to live in peace, to pursue it. But the only means we have to do that is you living out through us. 
Lord, thank you for that. God, apply that to our lives, not just today, but even next week when tough times come. To just remember, no matter how bad it seems, we haven't been abandoned. God is with us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.